You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am glad that you're here. Let me tell you about the guest today and why I chose her. Her name's Winnie Lee, and she wrote a book called Dark Chapter. Now, this book is very interesting to me, and just the concept behind it and why to do it, uh, along with a bunch of other things, made me want to see if I could talk with her and and poke around in somebody's brain uh, like this. But uh, it was born out of a kind of a tragedy. Winnie was in... um, Man, you're going to hear me in this episode, I stammer and stutter and say dumb questions because this whole episode, this whole book has to do with Winnie being violently raped in a park in uh, Ireland or in the UK when she was there for working on a film, and then she wrote this book about it. So anyway, the topic makes me uncomfortable enough that I don't want to upset anybody or say the wrong thing, that I probably sound goofy in this intro and in the interview. But anyway, I'll get over it. You'll get over it. Um, it's a fascinating conversation, but what she decided to do here was to tell her story, to embrace it fully, to turn it into a piece of art, and to actually t- tell the story from both the point of view of the person being attacked and violently raped and the rapist, and that is very fascinating. She has obviously a different way of looking at things and dealing with them head on, and it, I just, you know, that, I don't need to say that much more about it. But I wanted to go in there and just talk to her about the decisions she made. But I'm very heartened by people choosing to do things in a, you know, a different way or a new way or an artistic way to try to convey some deeper meanings and get out of the kind of normal ruts about the way we think about this stuff. Uh, sexual assault, sexuality, violence, all these things are changing pretty fast in the way that we view them. And so I'm very appreciative to people that explore them and look at them differently and try to, you know, jog your brain. And I think she's done a good job of that and and some of her work. So that's why I wanted to have this conversation. And I think you'll enjoy it very much too. She's got some fascinating things to say and points of view on it from um, her, her points of view. They're very valid, very interesting. Um, this episode is brought to you, of course, by Rockabilia. How's that for a transition? Rockabilia is where you get your band merch, where you get your T-shirts, hoodies, uh, posters, beanies, things like that. And, of course, if you use my promo code, our promo code, Jabberjaw, uh, PC Jabberjaw is the promo code, then you'll get 15% off anything that you get there. It's all officially licensed and good stuff. And then I'm going to tell you that we have Emory tour dates that you need to come out and see. And that's if you're in El Paso. Phoenix, San Diego, uh, Southern California, Los Angeles, Orange County, Sacramento, Portland, Seattle. If you're in any of those cities from the first week of June, we're coming your way. We've got some uh, really good stuff we're going to play. We're going to play some new songs we haven't played. We've got VIP thing where we'll play some acoustic songs, hang out, talk, questions, photos. That's always really, really fun and a big deal to us so we can meet the people that care the most. But again, those are Emory shows and that is emorymusic.com. We'll be with the band 68, who is terrific. You'll love it. You don't want to miss these shows. Okay, let's get into the episode. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Let's make Yeah! All right, Winnie, thank you for joining me today. 
Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I, I'm real interested in in your story and the stuff you do because let's see if I can explain what I think is compelling about it without giving it away. And I guess we need to certainly I want to give catch people up in the background to your book and and all that stuff. But uh, all right, let me see if I can talk comfortably here because I know we're going to talk about rape and serious things. And so I want to talk carefully about it, but I also want to be as relaxed as possible about it. Does that make sense? That, yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah. I, let me just start there. Um, and people already know from the intro and description, you know, some of this backstory here. So we don't necessarily have to go through it chron- chronologically or anything like that. But um, let me just ask you as a personality and as a you know writer, producer, activist, as it says on, on your website, how did you find it having to deal, like for me, I'm like, okay, we talk about a pretty serious subject. I want to be careful. I want to be clean with my words. I want to be respectful. Is that, if this is your job and this is what you do all the time, is that mode, is that the mode you all, do you get sick of always having to be in that mode of caution and care and talking about these serious subjects? What a burden it feels like. Um, I mean, yeah, I would say, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, if I say burden or emotional labor, yeah, there's a lot of that because you know, you're talking to, most of the time I end up talking to other survivors and Mm -hmm. you have to be careful about the way you're saying things. But I suppose because I already am a survivor, I kind of instinctively know the way you should be talking about things or shouldn't be talking about things. Mm -hmm. And and it's also kind of difficult to say that there's a should and a shouldn't because again, that creates an attitude where people are scared about about mm-hmm. the way they say things, which is I kind of the reason we're in the situation we're in now because people just don't want to talk about things because they're scared mm-hmm. of saying the wrong thing. That's true. So yeah, so I think for me it's more it's more about creating like an encouraging atmosphere and getting people to to think you know seriously about these issues, but also to realize that you know we're all human and and, and none of us, I mean certainly not even the survivors ourselves, know what is the right way to do things because there is no kind of set. Mm-hmm. like clear set of rules on how do we talk about sexual assault and rape and consent and all these things. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's more about creating like a sort of welcoming, encouraging atmosphere. Um, but obviously it has to be a safe space when you're, when you're dealing with people who could be survivors themselves. Right. And there is, yeah, there's a lot of um, emotional care that goes into it. Um, but I think a lot of that starts with your own attitude. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I sort of, decided it kind of was like an organic process of deciding to real focus on this issue um, just because it's something that changed my life and I realized mm-hmm. so many people were affected by it and sort of along the way I kind of just realized that there's a lot of people that do want to talk about it so it's not that so many people are scared of it I mean that is true but it's also that some people just don't know how to talk about it so just being that first person to kind of open the door mm-hmm. helps I suppose yeah yeah so this is it in just covers all kinds of territories that I, I find very, very fascinating. Mm. Um, and, but do you find that people that you're encountering, again, since you're in this day in and day out, when you're encountering people like me, do you find that people are overly tense and uncomfortable talking about it or too careful or they're too flippant? Is there is there one of those more dominant? Um, I mean, the people that are going to, you know, listen to a podcast, they know it's about rape and sexual assault, <laughs> or the people are going to, you know, come to an event that I'm speaking at probably already on some level engaged, right? Otherwise it wouldn't be going there in the first place. So I think um, a lot of times they, they may know somebody who's affected if they themselves aren't a survivor. Um, but, you know, I think there there is a fear and there is a, a tension that they don't know if they're saying the right thing. That happens to come predominantly from men, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes people do say quite flippant things, but I, those those people wouldn't tend to be in the spheres I'm in, I suppose. Um, that's more like stuff you might see on Twitter, you know, in the great Twitter sphere mm-hmm. out there. Um, but, you know, people that have like the more flippant 
uh, comments aren't aren't kind of in at the events that I'm going to be speaking at. But I mean, I also think it's important to speak to those people and just try to understand, like, okay, why do they think it's okay to make a flipping comment like that, or mm-hmm. you know, what is at the root of of that kind of opinion that they have? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's a it's a serious it's a, such an interesting time. With, it's such a dynamic issue, basically, because yeah. it's coming out of a thing where it's both a big problem and it's a taboo and people's public opinion on so many things is shifting so rapidly and it and this one is uh is is really tough and what i like about what you do is you are dealing with an issue like this through you know artistic and creative means and i think that is so much better than the the head on you know loud activism it just sounds i come out of a a, you know, like a conservative Christian kind of background. And I don't like preaching. You know, I don't yeah. like being preached yeah. at. And there's so yeah. many issues and there's a million issues. They're very mm. important. And I don't want to be preached at yeah. for yeah. on any of them. To, I mean, or yeah. I'm trying to represent what I think people feel like a little bit. There. I don't really mind getting preached at here and there, but I do, you know, and when somebody can tackle an issue and do something important and do it with integrity and do it as art or even in fiction or, and even the festival that you put together that has comedy at it somehow. So this is what this is what is so compelling about me is a heavy issue dealt with in a different way or what I call a side door. I think the side door to everything is almost always better than the front door, especially when it comes to art and entertainment. You don't just, you know, you got you got to do something here. So I want to talk about how you got to that. But let's spend. um, I also want to talk about the the incident, your rape and the book and how you do it in that. We'll just jump in there. So, yeah, cool. Your book is called Dark Chapter. And uh, I'll just let you give a quick synopsis of it, just so that I don't say it wrong. And then, <laughs> then, then we'll talk about how you approach the book and what I think is interesting about it. Yeah, no, it's cool. I mean, if you if you would just Google the book, I mean, it mm-hmm. comes up and it looks like it's a crime novel, right? And mm-hmm. in some ways, it is. Like, I just got nominated for the Edgar Award, which is for crime writing, and um, it's you know. So if I had to give like the elevator pitch, I'd say it's about a crime, which you see equally from the point of view of the victim and the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if I were to go a little bit deeper, I'd say, well, it, the crime is a rape. So mm-hmm. you see a rape from victim and perpetrator point of view from their childhoods leading up to the incident and the whole aftermath, the whole legal process and the, and the court case. And then if I want to go a little bit deeper, I'll say, well, it's actually based on my own rape, which happened 10 years ago when I was walking through a park and I was followed and um, beaten and, and attacked and raped by a 15 year old boy. Um, so, you know, that that kid and I will use the word kid because you know he was. Mm-hmm. Um, was half my age and it's kind of one of those things which you never think is going to have happened to you you know I was just walking Certainly. through a park on a Saturday afternoon um, and then this happened so within the course of minutes within the course of an afternoon my whole life was changed and it was only then I started to realize you know how much um, how much sexual assault and rape does affect a person's life and then I started to realize in the aftermath when I was talking to my friends you know how many of us are affected by that even mm-hmm. though you know we don't really want to talk about it so, so many of the women I knew then shared their story of the time when like, they were raped or their sister or their cousin or their mother um, or someone they knew. And I just started realizing that yeah, is really frequent. I mean, it's a very prevalent crime and we don't talk about it enough. And yet our lives are so affected by it. So I think that's kind of what led me to doing the work I do. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty interesting. You're saying that there's many, many situations. I'm curious to the breakdown of those uh, where you just tell people you have a crime novel and then you leave it at that and they never know the deeper story. Is that a lot of your interactions happen that way? 
Uh, most of the time I, I end up like linking on to mm-hmm. the, the bigger issue, but if it, you know, I kind of have to gauge the situation. Just like small talk kinda... at a cocktail party and you're about to bounce in 10 minutes. You just say, yeah. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's more increasingly more and more because, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. want to say, you know, we don't like using the word preaching, but I mm-hmm. think those of us who work on this issue feel like, you know, there is a lot of work to be mm-hmm. done in terms of educating people. So increasingly I will mention that it's about rape and it's about mine because that, you know, that's, that's a hook that gets people interested. And I think there's something to be said just by saying I'm a rape survivor and not having any shame come with that. Yes, not feeling yes. like I need to dress it up. Yeah, right? I love so. I love that uh that mentality. And there's so you know, I've not done a ton of thinking on this issue, but mm. this type of issue and things being taboo and then bringing them out or being bold enough to talk about them directly or not in those things is just something I've always really I, I just I can almost say I get a kick out of it. I just like the notion of trying to, I hate the thing where in any social or cultural setting or just personal setting, really, where the energy of some people dictate everybody's energy. So like mm. if you're around a person who's a downer and you get, you now you're going to be down to me, that doesn't make sense. I say yeah. the downer person needs to match my energy and come up. That's harder to do, of course. But in a situation where people are, are you know, don't want to talk about uncomfortable stuff or perpetuating taboos and being... They want everything to stay rosy. My inclination there is, well, let's be messy and see if we, mm. you know, let's let's see if we can mix this whole thing up. The more we communicate and express ourselves and do things, that's got to be the good way to handle this kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and if I start a conversation saying, you know, I was raped in a park by this by the stranger, and that's what the book is about. You know, if I go in there with that attitude where I'm that upfront about it mm. and you know willing to talk about it, then then people themselves are going to react in a different way as opposed to if mm. I say. I'm like, well, you know, this thing happens. And, like, you know, if I'm trying to mm-hmm. hide the fact of what happened, then people are going to start feeling apprehensive about how they talk about this. And then they're going to want to say, oh, you know, we don't want to hurt her feelings or this and that, you know. So I think as a rape victim and as a survivor, definitely you get the sense of like, you know, people feeling they have to have like white kid gloves and the mm-hmm. way they handle the issue or the way they handle you, which is why it's so weird in the immediate aftermath of being a victim because like, you know, nobody's interacting with you in a normal way if they know what happened to you because nobody knows what to do. Um, and so I just kind of want to sort of dismantle some of that fear and some of that apprehension and just start talking about the issue in a, an yeah. honest way, I suppose. Yeah. And that's almost what I was getting in my first question as I was trying to get comfortable talking to somebody new about a, this issue. But is it that you feel like you have people have kid like, are you sensing often, oh, great, this person's got kid gloves on around me. That's so anno- That would be so annoying to me to feel like I was always being treated that way. Is that common? I should have asked it that way. Um, I mean, not so much now. I mean, it's like 10 years after mm-hmm. my assault. And like, if anyone Googles me, they'll know that I'm pretty open mm-hmm. about it. But I think certainly like right after the assault happened, I mean, it's just such a weird, surreal thing to have happened to you. Like my life was going like, you know, in this direction. I was 29 years old. I was working as a film producer. And suddenly I'm assaulted and raped in a park. I decided to tell my friends because I just didn't really want to hide all that. Like I didn't want to hide this huge fact that had just changed my whole life and kind of uh, completely changed the way I felt about the world and, you know, my, my ability to move through the world. Um, so I decided to tell my friends and, and you know, people fro- freaked out. I mean, and they didn't freak out in front of me, right? Because um, I think they would feel really self-conscious about that. But I could tell that nobody knew exactly what to do. And, and to be honest, you know, at the time, if a friend had come to me and said I was raped and in a park violently, I wouldn't have known what to do. I mean, I think most of us don't know what to do. Um, so yeah, I was conscious of that whole white kid glove thing. And yet at the same time, it, you know, I knew that that came from a, you know, because they cared about me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you know, made for 
an awkward situation, sure. Um, but I was just so traumatized and in shock anyway for months that like I didn't I didn't know what was the best way to go about doing things. So yeah. But I just decided to be honest with my friends and tell them um kind of straight up and and at least that um you know, I think in in doing that, at least I was sort of taking the initiative um, mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to hide something, which um, was just like too big a fact for me to try to hide, really. All right. Pardon the interruption here, but I got some good information for you. Something that I like. This is a tip, really. Think of this as a tip. This is something I use every day. When I explain it to you, you'll... You'll be with me on this. I'm talking about Audible. I'm talking about audio books. Audible helps you listen to more books uh, because they have the largest selection of books on the planet, which I imagine only extends to the galaxy and universe and multiverse. They, they've they got all of them. This is the, the way to do this. Now, let me tell you why audio books are so important and powerful. I've been doing them. I, I balance my podcast listening with audiobook listening because they're very two different types of information, both in my preferred delivery system right into my ears on my headphones or AirPods or whatever you listen on. It's an incredible way to learn because it's hands-free and eyes-free. Think about that. You have, I'll tell you the books I'm reading. I just read uh, Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. And that's about like artificial intelligence and us designing the universe going forward as a species once we, uh, you know, move into the new types of things that we're going to have capabilities for in the future. And I'm just reading one right now called The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch, which talks about information and knowledge and how it can be used in the future. Anyway, that's the kind of stuff I'm into, but... These are like the smartest people in the world, the funniest people in the world, the most best fiction writers in the world. These are the most talented things that we have collections of people doing is books, and you can now consume them hands-free, eyes-free, while you do something else. And you'd have to be an insane person not to be taking advantage of such a modern luxury as this. Trust me, it will enrich your life. It's great. You know what else? You can do it across any device, like uh, tons of devices. You can go from your car to a tablet, from your phone to in your home to Amazon Echo. You can get through tons of books this way while doing, I don't know, vacuuming or cutting the grass or watching your your kids. I don't know, whatever you do. You can tell Alexa, read me my book, and she'll just read it to you. It's, it's, a, it's unbelievable. So take advantage of this. Uh, I'll tell you what else. If you want to take it, the uh, you can start your 30-day trial right now, and your first audiobook is free. So you just go to audible.com slash down or text the code down to 500-500 and you will get started on your audiobook. So again, let me repeat that. Go to audible.com slash down or text down to 500 slash 500. But again, Audible includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. I've already told you the books that I'm into, but there's stuff for everybody there. And again, last time I'm going to say it, Audible's offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash down, D-O-W-N, and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash down or text down to 500-500. Get started today.
I heard you say in another interview that it was, a, or you were listening to a radio show because your story got a lot of coverage. It was on the news and everything else. And you heard somebody, other people calling a radio show talking about you and your story and having all the stuff. And I imagine Twitter's the same way and how surreal that must be. But you said this thing changed your life and it obviously has changed your life entirely. It's mm-hmm. changed your profession and, and everything because you were a yeah. film producer and, and film industry before, more so. Yeah. I, I don't know if you still do some stuff in that, but change your career course. But in your whole life, but somebody called in the radio station and said that it had ruined your life and that bothered you. Yeah, so one of the more surreal things about my rape, and of course the whole thing is is surreal, but it was the fact that um, kind of just even a few hours after the assault happened, it was all over the news. Um, so the thing to bear in mind is, you know, I, I'm American, um, I'm Chinese American, um, and I was in Northern Ireland in Belfast. So kind of wherever I go, I'm going to stick out because I just look and sound differently from most people there. Um, and then also... Um, you know, the rape was very violent and he was very young. And so that kind of, that whole kind of combination of things made it like a big news story, right? Um, so while there were all these headlines saying like, you know, Chinese student, I wasn't even a student at the time, but <laughs> fine. I'm mean, a Chinese student brutally raped in the park mm-hmm. by a teenage boy, right? Um, so it was all these sorts of kind of quite kind of sensationalist headlines. Um, and so I wasn't aware of that for the first kind of like 36 hours um, after the assault because I was dealing with the police and I had to fly back to London um, where I was living at the time, uh, where I still live actually. Um, and then two days later I was Googling, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a curious person, right? So I Googled like Rape West Belfast and I started seeing all these news headlines about my own rape just show up on in the Google search. And it was, just, it was really weird and it was just Can't really imagine. weird to see. Yeah, I was being described as like a Chinese tourist or, or what have you. They all didn't really mention I was American. Um, so, um, so it was kind of, it was just bizarre. And then, um, the more I started digging around, I found a radio podcast. So one of like the big, well, I mean, it wasn't a podcast at the time, but kind of a radio show. And so the biggest um, radio chat show in Northern Ireland hosted by this guy named Stephen Nolan. And there was like a half hour conversation about my rape. And it was obviously it was complete strangers, people calling in and saying, this has happened. It's like Chinese tourists has been raped um, in a park by a boy. Um, do we think Belfast is still a safe city? Mm-hmm. So there was all this kind of people comment, calling in, making their comments, like the Lord Mayor of Belfast called in and commented on my rape. And it was just, it was really weird because obviously none of them knew me. And so I was just this cipher, just this like image in their heads of a, a Chinese tourist had been raped and they didn't really know anything about kind of the real me and the life I'd had before. And I think that's a big problem in the way that we um, report on news. Uh, we report on rape and news stories because oftentimes like the victim only exists for the violence you know for the act itself and you have no sense of her life before or her life after so she's almost not really that human um so there's just this kind of like like the least significant part of the story is the victim right yeah yeah yeah, exactly um even though she's the one whose life is going to be most affected um so there's just a sense of her as just not you know you can't get a sense of her as a real human being right um just this awful this awful like victim right um who's received this horrible you know treatment um Anyway, so this woman called up and she said, um, well, my heart goes out to that wee Chinese girl um, because, <laughs> you know, because her life is now ruined. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I know she was coming from a place of sympathy um, mm-hmm. because, you know, obviously she was feeling bad that this thing had happened to me. But I also remember feeling like distinctly insulted because I was like, oh, well, I mean, this woman doesn't even know me. So she probably has a very different image in her mind of like what what the person I was before. And and she, who is she to pronounce that my life is now ruined just because this thing, this is, just because of this one thing that's happened to me that another person did to me. And I thought it was a very damaging message, even though, you know, again, she was trying to be nice, but it's a damaging message to say that, basically say that once you've been raped, your life is ruined. Because mm-hmm. I mean, who knows quite 
quite likely there were other women listening who had been victims and again, they're getting this message, your life is ruined. Uh, there could be somebody listening who in the future would be raped and would think, oh yeah, okay, my life is now ruined. And it's, you know, it, it comes from a sort of, um, you know, worldview, which almost isn't willing to assign victims a sense of like a humanity and agency and, and the ability to recover. It's more like once that happens, that's it. Like your life's going to be miserable from then on. And that's a pretty damaging <laughs> message. And that's something I've been working, you know, pretty much since then to try to change that kind of message that we mm-hmm. hear. So and you can say that your life isn't ruined and is not miserable for the yeah. record. You know. No, it's not ruined. Mm-hmm. I mean, it certainly was ruined and miserable for a few years. Mm-hmm. And like it, so it's important to emphasize, you know, it's important for people to realize how much it does damage and impact your life. Your sense of self-worth is totally destroyed. Um, I often describe it as like, you know, you, you feel like a, a fish that's been gutted. So on the outside, you might look the same sort of um i'm trying to think i'm trying to think, can you gut a fish with the anyway? But um, but like you feel like you've been gutted. So on mm-hmm. the outside you see the um feel the same but then on the inside there's just there's nothing there mm-hmm. like you just you know you're in shock you're traumatized and the ability to feel emotion is gone so i totally felt like i wasn't even me and the big fear was if i was ever going to return to being the previous me that existed that morning of the attack mm-hmm. um, yeah. and, and so then when you get into writing the book and you could tell us how you i'm curious how you arrived at the idea to do it what I, fiction, first of all, instead of straight ahead, and then specifically the idea to tell it from the point of view of the rapist, who is, you know, a very interesting figure, being a 15-year-old boy. Uh, that part, it, actually, in this case, certainly is fascinating. Just, mm. uh, you know, I don't know if it's an outlier. I'm not that up on the statistics of violent rape or random rape in parks in a middle of the day. It's almost the kind of thing that you thought that's all we used to think rape was, or I don't know, rape like that. And then now it's like, does that still happen? And you know, and so what that part of the story is, is really interesting. Um, And then your decision to actually portray and and try to get from his point of view, telling me about that. I just think it's so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, so I've always been a writer, right? Mm -hmm. So like even, you know, from the age of six, if somebody asked me what I wanted to do, I'd say like, Oh, you know, I want to write a book. I mean, I I loved writing stories when I was a kid. And like, so I wanted to write a book. Um, So I just never obviously thought that my first book would be inspired by (laughs) my rape. Because that's not something you ever think about is going to have happen to you um, when you're a kid. Um, So yeah, so writing's always been kind of like the way I make sense of the world, Mm -hmm. the way I make sense of life, I suppose. Um, And so it was impossible for me to live through something like that, something that life changing and momentous as you know being raped and uh not try to write about it mm-hmm. um so i mean because on one hand the part of me that was a writer even though i was living through this like awful experience i mean and it wasn't so much the experience itself it's the aftermath that's really really damaging because you're just in a totally different world and you don't feel like yourself anymore um that was that's what's really damaging i just remember thinking okay like this is this is like in some ways this is nuts that i'm living this and at the same time the more i learned about him where I found out that he was so he was so young, he was 15 years old. He came from this kind of very different world from what I'd grown up in. Um, you know, he, he was illiterate. His parents, he was from a broken home. Um, he was from this tr- uh, community called the Irish Traveler Community, which um, gets a lot of, uh, there's a lot of um, prejudice against them. Um, they're often seen as being kind of associated with crime. It's a certain nomadic community that lives in Northern, in Ireland and in, in the UK. Um, so the more I started learning about that, the more I was like, oh, but he's from such a different world and I'm such a, from such a different world. And literally, it's just like two lives that happened to cross in that afternoon. You know, if I had been at that park a half hour earlier, I might, he might not have seen me. Um, and so the randomness of that 
and the fact that these two very different lives crossed and resulted in this act of violence that changed both of our lives in lots of different ways and changed the lives of the people we know. Um, I'm like, that needs to be looked at. And like, uh, and so part of me was thinking like, this is a really good story, you know? So while I was in the process of trying to recover at the back of my mind, I'm like, no, this is a really good story and I need to look into this more. Right. Um, so I, um, the first few paragraphs of the book, actually, I mean, the prologue I wrote um, just a few days after my, a few weeks after my assaults. Um, so it's kind of weird. I was just moving around in this post-traumatic haze. I post, I had um, agoraphobia, so I couldn't leave my apartment. And I sat down and I just started writing. And these paragraphs came out and they were really good. And I just started thinking like, well, all right, like this is not bad. And I realized that, um, you know, it, it was kind of reassuring because there was something about still being able to write despite everything that mm -hmm. happened to me that made me think, oh yeah, okay, if I can still write, then deep down, somewhere deep down there, I'm still me. Um, so anyway, I, I wrote those paragraphs and I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to file this, like, you know, put it to the back of my head and I saved it on my computer and I said, okay, I'm going to turn this into a book somewhere down the line. But the book is going to look at those two very different lives of the victim and the perpetrator and how they intertwine and how their lives were affected ever afterwards by the act of violence. So fiction being the second, uh, second part of my question, but the first part is it's so interesting to me that you decided to, I feel like it's against what people would naturally want to do to try to give any amount of empathy or anything to the perpetrator here or make much of him or try to make it understandable what he did. You know, that, that, that's just a, a, a feels like a counterintuitive impulse and I really yeah. like it. So tell me how, why, I mean, how it's impressive that you could even do that in a, in a way to me. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly not anything I could have done immediately after the assault. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the the impact of, of that kind of trauma is just it's, it, it lasts for years and I was in shock for a really, really long time. Um, and, you know, especially for victims of, of rape, you know, the last thing you want to think about is your perpetrator, right? Because right. it, it just, you know, just there's just all be, this... Fuck him nonsense. forever and never talk about him or something. Try to, you know, that would be what I would think people yeah. would, would do. Yeah, exactly. So even the thought of your perpetrator, even somebody that looks like him, if you pass somebody on the street that looks like him, that that creates a sense of nausea and panic. And, mm. you know, um, so that's something you actually want to avoid. Um, so, you know, I had to go through this very long process of recovery. Um, I had post-traumatic stress disorder. I eventually had um, this thing called cognitive behavior therapy, which helped mm. a lot. It helped that I was able to get a conviction or the state was able to get a conviction against him. Um, so he was sentenced in the end to eight years. I mean, sort of four years, but anyway, we get that later. Well, let's, yeah. let's just stay on that, some of this a little bit. That this Vic, that this perpetrator, is very interesting to me, and that he. Let's just talk about that. How do you feel about that? The eight years and the four years. Oh well, that is, and I do want to get back to you know looking at yeah. um, Johnny, the perpetrator, a bit closely, but uh, you know, and, and Johnny being his, I guess that's a fictional name. Yeah, it's a fictional mm -hmm. name. I mean, and, and the thing is, I, I know very little about him. I mean, I you know, in in real life, mm -hmm. I only knew about like five facts about him. And when I started to do research, um, with and I asked the police for some information, they were like, "Well, he's got a right to privacy, so you know, we can't tell him anything." And I was like. Okay, I'm running fiction in the end, so I suppose it doesn't matter. So I, I found out like five facts about him. So one was that he was 15. The other one, he was a member of the Irish traveler community. Um, you know, so he was nomadic. He was moving around a lot. Mm -hmm. His parents were um, were not. You know, he was he was from a broken home, so his parents weren't living in the same place. He was moving back and forth between his mom and his dad. Um, and he was illiterate, so he hadn't gone to any kind of formal education, or he hadn't had much. And for me, as a writer, to think, okay, like you know, writing is what I do, like, you know, I, words are really important for me. So for to even think about being illiterate and not knowing how to express yourself through writing, I'm like, wow, what is that like? Right. 
Um, and then also, you know, there was a partial DNA match. Uh, so the evidence I got off of my body in the forensic exam, there was a partial DNA match between that and somebody in his family, um, which, you know, I means somebody in his family had a criminal record. So, so already kind of just from those five facts, you're sort of an outline mm -hmm. of a person, right? Um, so I decided I'd want to take those five facts and just kind of fill in that outline and make him a, a human being, right? And because he is a human being, right? I mean, it's not like he's a robot or an alien. That well, did that. But, but monster is the category most people would have him. In, not human being. They move him directly from this event out of the category of human being. I think yeah. that, that's kind of the tendency. Yeah, but I think that is a problem. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm not denying that what he did was monstrous. Like, obviously, rape is a, is a monstrous thing to do to another person. But, you know, he, he was a human being. He was born. He was 15 years old. So he was born at some point. You know, everybody's innocent when they're born, mm -hmm. right? Nobody's born a rapist, right? And somehow within those 15 years, he developed and he kind of evolved into the person who then did that thing to me, which changed my life. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to look at that process and look at, you know, how does somebody in the course of 15 years develop these kinds of attitudes, maybe about women and girls develop this tendency towards violence and just like literally see someone in the park and think, okay, that I'm going to do that to that person. And like, that's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Or even if it's, or even if they maybe instinctively know it's not okay, but just still feel like that they're going to do it. Right. Maybe they can get away with it. Maybe they have gone away with it in the past. So, um, I felt it was important to kind of look at that. And even though it's something that most people would shy away from, the thought of like a serial teenage rapist, like people are like, oh, do, you know. Did you know um, he's serial? Like he had other rape? Do we know that? No, I don't know. I mean, there there had been um, there had been some kind of like, you know, rumors about him that he was like a well-known individual um, in that area. I don't know exactly what his previous crimes were. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, and he, so he didn't actually have from what I know, a previous criminal record, but um, people in his family did. But the thing is, when I was speaking to a lot of, um, I guess, like social workers that work with juvenile sex offenders and forensic psychologists, I mean, they all said, like, nobody is going to go from being perfectly well-behaved no, to violently raping a stranger in the park. So there would have been a series of escalating behaviors. Certainly, like maybe yeah. you know, he would have said something to a girl and then did some things and then it got more and more violent mm -hmm. and he never was caught. So, or maybe he got away with several others or who knows. Yeah, uh, you yeah know. exactly. And yeah. you, what, interestingly though, it's not, it's not just if you have come from a broken home in Ireland and uh, hang out with those travelers, you're a rapist either. Like even for that <laughs> gang, that cannot be the, the yeah. anywhere close to the norm at all. Yeah. So. Yeah, so it's kind of a, you know, people will say it's like a lethal cocktail or what have you. But I mean, there's a combination of different factors. I mean, there's plenty of Irish travelers who aren't, who are illiterate, who aren't rapists, right? Of course. Uh, so it's this particular individual. And I think that's something we, you know, I know we don't want to, but like, you know, we sort of owe it to ourselves as a society to look at rapists and try to figure out, you know, how did they become like that? I mean, people like, you know, Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein, like really totally different experiences mm -hmm. from this boy, you know, very privileged, have lots of power, mm -hmm. you know, um, why, why were they doing those kinds of um, things, right? So uh, I think, you know, if we're not willing to look at rapists and see them as being human beings, we're constantly calling them monsters, right. we're never really going to understand why this behavior is happening in the first place. We're not going to be able to stop it in the future. Yeah, well, it's, I, I think of, uh, you know, the show Law & Order SVU? Yeah. That show, yeah. okay. So that, to me, when I, th I like the show, and I also criticize other people for liking it on the on basically this basis. I when I watch that show, I feel like the point of it or is or I take to be like, gosh, this is so common and prevalent. Mm. This is what we are like, us humans. We're like this. We have this. We do this. And I think the show is a hit and a success, and everybody loves it because they like to watch it and go, 
whoo, I'm glad I'm not a bad person. Every, there are bad pe- There's a few bad people out there, and I love to hate them. I love to mm-hmm. see monsters and say that they're not like me or the people I know. And I think yeah. that's the wrong way to watch it, basically, kind of thing. And what you're doing here is the, the uncomfortable business of trying to humanize monsters. And even the, even the Irish travelers, it, it seems like it's, that should be the group you hate. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you try to like even make them sound like, well, they're not all this. And they, they're maybe, uh, I don't even know how you speak of them, but you almost sound like you're trying to really put flesh on both the the attacker here and even even that group which most people do the opposite about both yeah i mean i have you know i was very conscious of the fact that you know because it's a community that there's already a lot of prejudice against them like when i told some you know irish friends or contacts of mine that my rapist was a traveler they'd be like oh all right that makes sense you know i mean so it's it's like yeah, kind of that level that do that yeah, yeah it's yeah. that level of prejudice right mm-hmm. um so, you know, I was very conscious of the fact that if I'm going to try to create him as a character and see things from his point of view and show the traveler culture, I, I had to do it ideally in a sensitive way or ideally in a way that showed everything that they were up against, you know, as a community, the kinds of obstacles and the kind of prejudice that they're subjected to. Um, and I had, to, you know, there are characters in the book who are travelers who, who aren't rapists, you know, who are, who are, you know, for example, women that are trying to, you know, a- attain an education and all these sorts of things that, you know, don't, aren't exactly the stereotype or, or showing how, how different characters, you know, we, as individuals, we live in a society and there's different, whichever society that is, you know, there's different limitations on and constraints and expectations that we all have so as individuals it's how do we struggle with that right so for johnny because he was a traveler you know already all of society hates him in some ways and so that kind of anger that sense that like the world hates me right coupled with you know a, a violent upbringing coupled with the fact that like i don't really have much so i have to take what i can get that for me was you know at least sort of an explanation as to why he became the way he did but it's a it's a different situation for you know Bill Cosby for example right um, very very different set of thoughts and beliefs that led to his behavior so yeah and you mentioned him and, and Weinstein what what do they have in common with with this guy like like you said they're completely different backgrounds the acquaintance people you know versus strangers violent I mean I don't know but what what do they uh, what do they have in common. I mean, so I think it's just this desire for power, um, even, you know, even if it's power for like one moment or an mm-hmm. afternoon or, you know, but it's this, uh, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm not a forensic psychologist myself, but I mean, most, most people I speak to that work in this field will say that, you know, rape isn't really about sex or lust or sexual mm-hmm. desire. It's about power. and It's about wanting to exert power of another human being, even if it's just for a short period of time. So for Cosby, you know, if he was, you know, drugging most of these women and, 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 you know, maybe he got sort of a thrill out of drugging these women, people, you know, tricking them into thinking, you know, they were safe and then, and then doing what he wanted with them when they were incapacitated. And then, you know, Weinstein different because he didn't necessarily use drugs, but I mean, Weinstein himself, you know, operated, he thrived on power. He was the most powerful mm-hmm. man in Hollywood for a long time. Um, so for Johnny, like really different because here's a boy that has pretty much no power in, in a sense, because, you know, he's not educated. He's, Nobody cares about him. He's neglected by his family. Um, so violence is the way, you know, at least in the way I was trying to write him, violence was the way that he was at least able to feel like he could be powerful for for a moment or two, you know, and maybe count in some ways. So yeah, that that yeah. that that makes a little bit of sense. I was trying to f- find the through line there, and I know you people say, you know, it's pretty common to the the notion that rape is about power. I'm curious if you think it can be about other things and sex and stuff like that too. Because I guess the a whole another dimension of that is there's the that all the way to Weinstein, which is clearly p- 
power thing to mm. the other type of like things that happen between people dating that are inappropriate and sexual assault and things we call rape too. And I'm curious if you can help us with definitions or what you think about the people that want to try to separate the types of rape here. I mean, I, I may be, no, I'll just say for me, I typically react when I don't know what I'm talking about. Like I wish we did have better terminology for these different things. Yeah. 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 Cause the thing is rape is such a scary word, right? Yeah. I mean, it's such a scary word that victims of rape don't want to use it themselves. So, you know, most most victim survivors I speak to, you know, a lot of them took weeks or months or even years to realize that what happened to them was rape or to use Mm -hmm. that word to describe what happened to them. So I remember hearing, you know, a friend of mine, uh, you know, again, she she was effectively raped when she was out traveling in Spain. And she told me her story. And the first time she told me her story, she didn't use that word. She was just like, you know, I went went back to this guy's place because he said he had to get a jacket or something like that. And he was suddenly he was doing this to me. So it was kind of like, and then later on, she's like, you know, that actually was rape. I'm like, really? I mean, this is like years before my own assault. And I was like, oh, no, yeah, I guess so. But it's just, uh, it's such a word that is so scary that we don't want to use it. Um, similarly, I think um, there've been a lot of uh, kind of studies of college age or, or university, or college kind of um, people in college students what the hell was mm-hmm. it? sorry college, college students, age you know, people that go to classes people, you know, <laughs> whatever yeah. that is <laughs> in america um who um you know and they would ask college boys um you know would you if a woman was passed out drunk um and you know you were horny or what have you and you knew that you could have sex with her and get away with it would you do that um and i think it was like 25 percent of them said yes right so it's not phrased in a way where it's like would you rape her but it was you know effectively it is rape if a woman's passed out drunk oh yeah 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 you know um, she's not consenting so i mean i think so there's this there's a strange thing where the actual lived experience of rape or sexual assault is more prevalent than the times that we use the word or want to use the word Mm -hmm. um so, but what you're talking about there in terms of like a, a lack of understanding about consent, or it's not even just a lack of understanding consent, maybe it's just a lack of caring about consent. Like that is something that we need to talk about. And that is something which is more, that's more frequent than, than the Bill Cosby's or, or, the, or the stranger rapes that mm-hmm. happen in the park. Um, so that, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. It's an important one. It's something that comes up. It's been coming up a lot more um, in you know, the past few months because of Me Too. But I think it, you know, it takes a lot of just having really serious, honest conversations, I think, with boys and men, you know, from very young ages in terms of like what what is their definition of consent? You know, how how would they approach a girl if, you know, if they were in this particular situation and it kind of seemed like she was interested, but they weren't totally sure, Um, you know, and I just think um, it's. It's an uncomfortable topic in yeah, some ways because on one hand... And people don't want to talk about it. They just don't even want to say, you know, it sounds like you're being, you know, even to poke at some of the questions that I have, I feel like, well, I, this is going to make me sound like I'm this way or that way or something like that. But consent is such an important concept. Yeah. It is so important that it needs to be really discussed, I think, kind of in detail. Um, and I'm curious for somebody that has been, I, and I don't have better terminology for this thing, so I'm going to walk into it, but I think that's what I want. I, I, that's okay with me if, if it's okay with other people, but you've been violently raped, it, it, you know, like the, the, the real bad kind. And that sounds terrible to say that. And then there's the other kind isn't not bad, but would you, is there other things that you say? Yeah. But are there frustrations you have with other, the labeling of rape for other things? For instance, is every violation of consent a rape? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, and like, I know, I know other victims who are victims of violent rape who have um, 
problems with the whole Me Too movement mm-hmm. because it's lumping together, you know, violent rape with workplace sexual harassment. You know, um, so they feel like their experience is being belittled because they're in the same right. group as women that you know have been hit on at work, right? Right, exactly. Um, boss, right. right, but you don't feel I, that you way. know. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel that way because I think it's important just to have a conversation in the first place. It's also important to realize that um, you know we're on a continuum of behavior. So. Mm-hmm that person at work who is maybe a little bit sleazy, who, you know, who's always coming on to you, um, you know, has a certain misogynistic set of attitudes and that set of attitudes could later on down the line, or maybe already has grown into, uh, could grow into, you know, the capacity to assault somebody sexually. Right. Um, so, and so it, it's kind of on both sides that there's a continuum. So like a perpetrator, like I said before, when I was trying to write Johnny, you know, probably, you know, had done other things, mm-hmm. you know, had assaulted women in different ways, maybe smaller ways before it led up to the violent rape. Um, and in the same way, um, so if you don't stop that, then, you know, that's going to grow into maybe something more serious, um, and more violent. Um, so you think by using the term rape at level just right, you know, as it's just weird because you have to say it somehow as liberally as it can be applied, I suppose, that that is helpful in the, in, in stopping the, the worst forms? I mean, yeah, I mean, you have to call it as, you have to call it for what it is, right? So rape is, you know, sucks with somebody without their consent. Mm-hmm. Right? So that, you know, that happened to me when I was beaten in the park by a boy, but mm-hmm. it also happens to women when they're out on a date with a guy and that they are consenting to something and that guy is still doing that to them. Right. Um, so that's not a time when people like to use the word rape, but that is rape. Right. And I think it needs to be called for what it is. Um, you know, that's, but you know, we are in this kind of world where people are, well, might use sexual assault for that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, there's also this term non-consensual sex, which I've seen, which is basically rape. So I don't even know why that exists, non-consensual sex, but maybe it's again, because rape is too scary. But I think, I think we need to call it for what it is. But I'm also conscious of the fact that some victims themselves may not want to use that word. They're right. going to say I was sexually assaulted. So, yeah. Yeah. I was just, about, yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's fine. I was just trying to get kind of, I mean, I'm not, I'm not one of those people that want to split hairs about what well, technically there's, you know, you can get down in the minutia of claims of people and you know verbal consent every you know you can get into all the silly stuff um and i I don't intend to do that but i am curious if it's even like murder is murder one murder two it's you know it's how does the law from what you know because i don't know the answer look at and i'm back to the question of do you think that how was that justice system in the eight year sentence and four Mm, years how how does the law from what you understand look at the the spectrum of different types of uh, different rapes and, and how do you think it came out in this case yeah i mean well the law is different in each country right Mm -hmm. so i mean my my whole case was tried in the uk um so there is you know for example there's this term digital penetration sorry i mean this might be this is is very you know kind of like you know (laughs) um technical discussion of something which you know could be traumatic for people but so digital penetration means you know a guy or you know a perpetrator using a finger Mm -hmm. right um as opposed to you know his penis um in in a woman's vagina so that i mean that happens right and that is that is a crime and that's sexual assault in some places that's not called rape because rape needs to be his genitals as Mm -hmm. opposed to his finger right um but you know that is i i know women who are survivors of that and it is very traumatizing it can be as traumatizing um as you know as a man using his genitals um so like that is a crime but it's not classified as being rape in some countries whereas in other countries i think any foreign penetration regardless of 
what the object is 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 rape. Um, so so yeah, I mean, but that's in some ways that's sort of splitting hairs because regardless as the victim, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter you know what what it's, what's been used to penetrate you. It still is you know assault, and it still is very um, still is very traumatizing, and it will change your life forever. Um, so. Uh, for me, you know, going back to the question of his sentence, like he, you know, he was sentenced to eight years. He served four, right? He served four because in Northern Ireland at the time, there was a policy called 50% remission, which just meant that people end up serving half their sentence. And that's just kind of a, a, a legacy of, of the kind of political struggle that was happening in Northern Ireland. Um, so, you know, people ask me, like, oh, are you angry that he only served four years? And, you know, on some level, I kind of had to come to this um come to this point of not being so angry about everything right um just and that's my personal thing so i just felt like anger was really destructive right and if i was going to be angry for the next 10 years and the rest of my life like that you know that was going to put me in a really uh, exhausting place i suppose so you know i'm not particularly angry um anymore like i mean on some level like theoretically i am but i don't hold that anger so much anymore in kind of my day-to-day life um but you know i could i could get really angry about that um but then on the other hand it seems quite arbitrary because i know if he was tried and convicted in the united states he would have a much longer sentence right like 15 20 years right uh if it was a different country he would have had a shorter sentence so it's it's really arbitrary because just based on what country you're in and what legal system you know you're working with the other reason it's arbitrary is that i just know that there's so many victims and survivors out there who haven't had their rapists convicted um so they're having to deal with you know the the chance of running into them i mean maybe they live in the same family as the rapist right so like i felt that it was really in some ways selfish of me to say like i'm angry that he only served four years knowing that there's so many other victims out there who don't even have um any kind of luxury of a conviction against the rapist so the whole thing in some ways is quite arbitrary and even and like you know the like the crime itself was was just random. I just happened to be going through a park and I met mm-hmm. this person. So I guess for me, I just had to realize like, you know, what, what happened to him happened to him. Like I have no control over the criminal justice process. Like I did my bit. I, you know, I reported and I provided evidence. Um, you had to go to trial or testify and things like that? I, yeah, was was supposed to. So I um, was, there was a trial that was scheduled. This is all in the book. Um, the trial, oh no, it's not in the book because in the book there is the trial. So what happened in real life was that the trial was scheduled and I flew over to Belfast thinking I was going to have to testify. And it was like 11 months of waiting and it was just, it was, it was awful, right? I mean, it was like the worst thing you can imagine is the thought of having to go back into a courtroom, go into a courtroom and testify in great detail about your rape in public in front of your perpetrator, right? So um, I wasn't able to get any joy from my life for years, but yeah. those 11 months That's were terrible. awful for me. Is there not a better yeah. way to do that? Like in the room with the guy, like, it's just, yeah. it's just, that's the worst stuff in life. I, I, I was just thinking about it sometimes, like when you know people and they die and it is the very time you had to deal with all the, the most yeah. painful, worst things you wouldn't want to do at the most time you wouldn't want to do it. And well, we, that's what we got to do. I mean, that's just so yeah. weird that we can't figure well, out I mean, a better way yeah. to do stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's there's people that do want to change the system. Like, I don't think the victim needs to be in the same room as the perpetrator, right? Mm-hmm. And there are ways, actually, where you can testify in a different room, but then, you know, the barristers, the lawyers um, in the UK were saying, well, you should actually, it, it looks better on you, it reflects better on you if you're in the same room as him, because it shows that, you know, you're, it implies that you're telling the truth and you're not mm-hmm. scared of what happened, even though I was scared. So the whole spectacle of, of the rape trial itself is just weird and, and awful for the victim to go through. Um, so I flew over there expecting to testify. And the morning of the trial, I was sitting 
in the witness room waiting for the jury to be selected. And then the barristers came in and they said, well, there's been a change. And he has agreed, um, if, if you're willing to reduce the counts that he's charged with, he's agreed to plead guilty. Um, and I'm like, what does that mean? Because it's like so mm-hmm. legal, right? And I was like, wait, so does that mean I don't have to testify because there won't be a trial? And they're like, yeah, if he agreed this, you know, there won't be a trial and he'll just plead guilty. And I was like, yeah, of course, right? So I was on one hand really relieved that I wasn't going to have to testify. On the other hand, I was just, um, I kind of felt a little bit robbed of the opportunity to tell my story, mm-hmm. even though I now know that, you know, a court case is not the best opportunity, you know, for the victim to tell her story. Um, yeah, so for me, I was I was lucky, you know, because I did manage to get the conviction without having to go through the whole trial. Um, but I just know so many other people that have been through that who've gone through the trial, you know, and it, they weren't they weren't able to get a conviction for their um, perpetrator. And I just can't imagine how damaging that would be. Because um, you've already gone through this whole process, and at the end, you don't get justice. I mean, I don't know if there's a statistic on this or a great way to measure it, but the amount of convictions that occur for the crime of rape must just be unbelievably low. Because most yeah. of them are not even reported, right? I mean, yeah. I don't yeah, know exactly. anything about statistics, but I would imagine most things that are non-consensual sex qualifying as rape are nowhere—the the vast majority of them are just never spoken of even to anybody, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I mean, so I think in the UK, for example, it's less than six percent of reported rapes oh, gosh. result in a conviction, right? But of reported only, rapes, though, I think most rapes. of them aren't reported. Most rapes aren't yeah. reported, right? Yeah, so like only one in ten rapes are ever reported. So we're talking about like if so, you're imagining like one in ten rapes, and then of that one, six percent of what? Yeah, so, so that's, less than one percent. If you do that, yeah. I believe if you yeah. do that math, you'll be in the and sub one percent category of rape convictions. Yeah, That's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And then I think in the US, I've seen a statistic where it's um, out of every thousand rapes that occur, six of those rapists will serve time. Mm-hmm. So like 994 will, yeah. um, and will probably go on to do the same thing to other women because they haven't been held accounted for. You know, they haven't been held accountable. That's, for that's another thing that sucks so bad about being the victim is it's on you to help people. And man, I, yeah. I, I suppose you could really I, this is hard to think about, but as a victim that stays quiet, do you now have responsibility for who else got, you know, mm. victimized that you didn't help? And, you know, you can understand that on a lot of sides. And I think some, some of that in the Hollywood and me too, I hear people criticize. It. I wonder if you have a thought on that, but it's like the people, the women and all the people that are supporting the Me Too and calling out Harvey Weinstein, but never did before or no details on it. Do you make do you as somebody's been in Hollywood and movie producer? Do you have do you make sense out of that? Yeah, I mean, so there's kind of two things we're talking about here. One is one is okay. What is the responsibility of the victim, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so it, and it is really tough because we live in a society where victims aren't believed half the time, most of the time, right? Um, so you know, uh, most a lot of victims and survivors I know, a lot of them feel the ones that didn't report feel really guilty for not having reported, and they feel guilty yeah. because. Like that person, that guy's probably going to do go out there and do that to other women, and I know what it's like now to be a victim. So they feel guilty for it, um, and it's you know it's awful that victims have to feel an additional guilt right. for not reporting it. But that's because you know there's very good reasons why women don't report because the criminal justice process is like you know it's so damaging um, and it completely dominates your life, um, and because you know in other scenarios, for example. If it happens at work and it's your boss, like, you know, you're going to lose your job, for example. There's a chance of that, right? And there's all the shame that comes with it that unfortunately still exists in our society um, for a crime which was near fault to begin with. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why victims won't report because you just don't want that label of being a rape victim. You don't want to have to confront kind of the truth of what happens. Um, 
And I think that's very, it's believable and understandable from my perspective why somebody wouldn't want to report. But then you have to deal with that, that guilt, unfortunately, um, of not, of not reporting. And I think, you know, for victims, like, you know, and this is the case for me as well, like your one responsibility is to yourself, right? It's to mm-hmm. yourself to recover from this awful trauma that's happened to you, right? So I was lucky I didn't have, you know, kids that was in a relationship when it happened, you know, so I just, and I actually wasn't able to continue working. So I just really focused on recovering myself. And I know that's a luxury because if I had kids, it would have been different. Um, and I think a lot of victims oftentimes will put that off, you know, um, and, and not really address what happened to them. And and un- until you really address it, I don't think you can really recover. Um, so I don't think we can say it's their responsibility to report. The responsibility is to themselves to recover. And then if a lot of times if they know that the, um, the criminal justice process is going to be damaging to their recovery, then, you know, that's understandable why they wouldn't do that. So what we really need to do is create a system where victims are believed and where, you mm-hmm. know, the criminal justice process actually works, right? Um, with Weinstein and with people like, you know, with him, yeah, I mean, people kind of pretty much knew that he had this behavior with women. I don't know if they knew how violent it was, but, um, you know, that's, I suppose in that case, we're talking about somebody who's who's so powerful, who lives in a system, who's working in a system where, you know, people just don't want to confront that. <laughs> they don't mm-hmm. want to confront the fact that their boss, for example, is a rapist, right? Or, you know, uh, treats women horribly. Um, and that's that's about power structures, right? So I think that, the, and that's the dangerous thing about, about power and rape, because a lot of times men that are rapists are powerful, so they'll already be in powerful positions, like Harvey Weinstein, um, and then it's even more difficult to try to get them held accountable for their actions. Um, so again, that's where you know we need to take a long, hard look at the way we deal with this and the, the way systems are set up. You know, I mean, in his case, he was president of a company, mm-hmm. so like nobody in his company could really kind of go up against him anyway. So. Um, you know, how do you report that? That's where you're supposed to rely on the police. But then if the police are, aren't willing to move forward with something, then there isn't really any chance of getting justice until years later. So, yeah. How, how do you think about the who knows how many Hollywood uh, actresses participated with Harvey Weinstein in a way that was consensual? I, I have a hard time making sense out of, you know what I mean? Like I can't, I, and I'm only asking you this. I don't even know. I'm just, you have mm. good insight. You, I think you're super sharp at, at, at all this stuff. So if you don't mind me poking around, how do you think about that? Yeah. I, I mean, and I suppose, yeah, there's that other question of like, you know, what constitutes consent? I mean, and a lot of that's, if you're yeah. looking at Hollywood, you know, it's a system where you have a lot of young, beautiful women who want to become actresses. Mm-hmm. You have very powerful men who can make or break a woman's career. Right. So if a woman who's much younger, you know, who's kind of seduced by him or who's in a scenario where he kind of asks them for a sexual favor, it, it decides to do that, is that because she's actually consenting because she finds an attractive right. person that wants to enter in a relationship with them? Or is that more sort of business, like this is a smart thing for my career move, right? Um, can we call that consent? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not that, sure. That's kind of what I'm asking. Yeah. And it's yeah. not because I have a strong point of view and there ain't no trap here or nothing. I just, these are complicated things and I'm curious about them and I hear other people's different opinions about them, but you're doing a great job. So keep on, keep, you are, you're helping me really, you know, you know, this is good. I mean, there, so there's an interesting example with like Asia Argento, who's, um, she's an Italian actress and, and director as well, mm-hmm. who, um, you know, was one of the more vocal women against him. And so, when, if you read her account, she'll say that 
it was invited up to the hotel room. Um, you know, he did this whole bathroom, giving a massage kind of routine. And that first encounter wasn't really consensual. And then after that, she decided she wasn't, she will say she was in a consensual sexual relationship for two years. Um, but, you know, kind of underlying all that is the fact that she probably only would have done that partially because he was really a powerful man mm -hmm. in Hollywood. Um, so, you know, if we're going to, yeah, I I don't know if you can call that consent or not, um, mm -hmm. because we're talking about sexual relationships that exist within a power structure, and, and like that's that's yeah. not just the film industry that's been going on, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. all of human history, right? Um, you know, you have powerful men who demand sexual favors from women. You have women who think that if they do that, who are, they're either threatened or they realize that if they do that, maybe it makes sense for them practically. On pra some it level, can just right? be practical, you know. And it's just an industry. I'm in the music industry, and yeah. you, people do whatever they can to get an edge, especially in those high demand industries where people just want to be and it, you know it's it's it, you talk about the systems and the, and the legal systems and systems that we have uh, uh, for where women need to be believed victims need to be believed and things like that and it, it, you know there's so much focus on systems and institutions and the harm they cause and I am glad we've gotten to this point where we can recognize that those things exist but I still feel real stumped on what could be different I, you know it just seems yeah. like these this is power dynamics re, i want to i want to say they're just going to recreate themselves how could you mandate any other way that the person with power is going you know that and people re willingly go right into to it you know like mm -hmm. people preemptively think if they do the wrong thing to get the edge and have sex with this guy or you know it's just so it so feels like i can't even get my head around it like what what you could do to dismantle systems that are that way because it just seems yeah. like human nature yeah well i mean okay so there's a few things that could be done i mean one but before i get to that like you know what's really frustrating for me is that you know the the young woman that decides to sleep with the the film mogul for example mm -hmm. because it could help her career like she's then called a gold digger right mm -hmm. like they're always like oh well she slept her way to the top right and um yeah i mean is that is that purely her fault you know i mean that she's done that or is it really just the fault that you know here's a powerful man that's using his power to get sexual favors from a woman um and it's also kind of the fault of the whole system that you're saying so but the, the annoying thing for me is that like the woman is always painted as being like the one who's at fault or the one who's like morally reprehensible because she's a gold digger right um where i think the big problem is the fact that that system exists where the only way a woman feels like she can get ahead is you know by sleeping with a powerful man so the way that we change that system is you have um more gender equal positions of power and you don't have just men in in the decision making positions i mean if you look at hollywood it's like you know for example if you look at film directors like less than 10 percent of directors are women i mean that's ridiculous because you know like women make up 50, 51% of the population. Why are we so, why are there so few women directing the movies, right? So if you're directing the movies, then you're in a position of power about who gets cast and this and that. Same thing with film executives, right? So kind of th throughout, not just film, but like throughout so many industries, the people in power are men. So that will create a certain dynamic where they may, some of them may use their power to get sexual favors and women mm -hmm. may feel like the only way they can get ahead is by sleeping with men. So, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're, I mean, you know, this is kind of broad brushstrokes that we're talking about here, but I think, you know, one way to dismantle it is to have like 50, 50% representation of men and women in those decision-making positions. Um, so that's one thing. And the one thing, and the other thing is just to create more kind of formal systems where women can get those roles or women, you know, can, can get the training they need to, to get into more powerful positions. Um, you know, with film, like, you know, what music's like with film and music and 
all these worlds, it's kind of like, it's not even necessarily based on how talented you are. It's mm-hmm. like who you know, right? So, um, and so that, that kind of industry, if it's all based on who you know, kind of creates a sort of weird informal means by which people get employed. Um, it, it's really complicated because it's so, the, the, these industries are so polluted and music, I can speak mm-hmm. to music business more so, but they're so polluted with people that are trying to, have things and grab things and do things and at the same time for sure it 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 is a it's a real meritocracy in the sense that real talent i i've seen it many many times will emerge and succeed and get there and there's things against it and there's people you know the more times and places there's gatekeepers it's going to be more friction for the real talent to get there and there's going to be people that try to block you out uh but it does it does it does work i mean you can get you Mm. can i I hope i hope that's the, the the message that people get is it's it's very clear that it's harder for some people than others that is yeah clearly true and i like to think and believe and encourage people to fight through that friction because it you know talent and abilities and things can prevail and in music at least more than hollywood so far although things mm. going this way we've seen the big companies and the bigger high-powered managers and all the stuff that we think in the music industries i just think that stuff's bullshit not because they're necessarily abusive or sexually or anything like that it's just like this is these 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 gatekeeper people that try to hold power regardless of how they use it uh and and leech off of talent and musicians and artists that's i, th- I think that's a problem all the way around and so the yeah. more the technology's changed at least we're kind of getting out of that and i'm i'm kind of encouraged by more different styles of artists and artists creating their own way and i would put into that category probably women film directors and actresses stuff like that it's harder there still i'm sure there's a lot more friction and i hope they can work continue to work hard be doubly encouraged and 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 get through is that yeah am i making sense there yeah no i think so and i think what you're saying with technology like yeah that has i mean it hasn't totally leveled the playing field but it it makes it easier for somebody to get their music out there it makes it easier for people Mm -hmm. to crowdfund to get the money you know to to make their film um or their their album at the same time that's not not totally equitable right because in order to raise money i mean a there's so much you know, if you're doing a crowdfunding campaign, there's so much work that goes into that. It's, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> um, and then you have to know enough people that have enough money, right? So, um, but it makes it more equitable. Um, you know, and you, you're right. I mean, real talent will emerge, but there's also lots of really, really talented people mm-hmm. out there who will never get noticed and whose, whose work is never going to get out there. And that, that's kind of what's quite sad, especially when you think about kind of the mediocre stuff that does get out there because of the people that know people right so um but you're right i mean at least you know you do you do find incredibly talented people out there and people that are hugely successful you're like no okay yeah, yeah that's because they do have it in some ways so. yeah I, i'm trying to be very sensitive to the thing but i just really do believe that that i really want to encourage people to to fight to do it to fight to get there you can, i mean you know what i mean like that's just mm-hmm. i don't want to lose that element while we look at, at at the other element of equity and things like that it's kind of the way that i look at that um so let's talk a little bit about your festival. I think that yeah. is, is a fascinating idea as well. I mean, you know, we're going to be out of time here shortly. So the book okay. is Dark dark Chapter. And so I think just what we've already talked about in that, the fact that you're doing this hard work of humanizing the monster and, the thing, you know, and being willing to just just to even cover your own rape and, and is great. And I, I really hope people will check out this book just on that artistic and it's I don't know. It's just great. I just am really inspired by all that. And then tell me about the festival and everything else you do. 
Yeah, I mean, the festival ties into some stuff we were saying before, um, which is that you generally people are so scared to talk about sexual assault and rape that, um, you know, they're not, no one's going to go, I mean, people will, but like people will be more scared to like go to a conference where people are talking about it seriously mm -hmm. than to go to a festival where they can maybe engage with art that approaches it from a more human level, right? So um, I started realizing there was like, okay, hey, there's so many people out there who are affected by this issue, and there's actually quite a lot of artists who are creating art about it, whether that's songwriting and music performance or, or stand-up comedy or, you know, lots of really good theater being written about this issue, you know, literature on my end because I'm a writer, and there's many other writers, comic book um, writers, visual artists that are engaging with this issue, and obviously, you know, documentary films as well and other, you know, fiction films. Um, so I just started realizing, like, okay, on one hand, the, the, the traditional gatekeepers in, for example, theater, a lot of them were, would be scared to show, maybe not so much now because it's 2018, but traditionally they're like, oh, well, you know, here's a, here's a play about rape. We don't want to show that because of the stigma and, you know, mm -hmm. no one's going to want to go to it. But I was like, no, there's actually people that want to see this. A, this work is being created by, by survivors and it's good, really good quality. And B, you know, there are people that want to see this because there's so many people who've been affected by it. So I decided to create a, a festival, which would be a platform for this art to be seen and performed and, and engaged with. Um, and so we kind of, the first year we had to crowd, well, traditionally we've just crowdfunded everything because we haven't had the time to raise proper money. Um, but, you know, we raised um, enough money to do like a four-day festival. And um, we had, uh, you know, we had film screenings, we had um, theater performances, we did have stand-up comedy. Um, and everyone's always asking, well, how can you have like exactly, comedy without right. Um, well, first yeah, of all, you called it a festival versus a conference, which is, I just think it's just bold like to do that. It's like, yeah. it's a festival. Yes, it, you can have a festival. You can do, I mean, th these are the complexities that I, that's what I think art's all about is like transfusing yeah. dark and light. Yeah. You know, there's just so Absolutely. Neat. Yeah. And it's a festival because, I mean, because in some ways you're celebrating the human capacity to mm -hmm. create things to create art to connect um you know to, to build a community over uh, through as a result of something really dark right um and a supportive community so instead of you know everybody going into a room and crying right which which and that does happen at the festival a little bit because it, it is such a powerful um issue mm -hmm. but most people um instead of having this really dark serious attitude it's like okay why how can we create a welcoming atmosphere where people can go in and you know and they can see a play that they can relate to and then afterwards we'll have a discussion about about that particular play um or you can use comedy to poke fun at you know at rape culture um you know and to, to kind of really raise questions about the way men sometimes act towards women for example right um so um yeah so i suppose we wanted to you know replace the shame and the silence that you often have around this issue around rape and sexual assault with um you know insight understanding and community and um just to have people feel a little bit less alone um in terms of what they're going through so um yeah it was great and then we had um a second festival at the end of last year and um we're in talks with people to bring it to america as well so um yeah so i think in maybe philadelphia or new york that might be happening and also um potentially on the west coast as well but i'm all in favor of, if people want to do a clear lines festival in other parts of the u.s it doesn't have to be a four-day one it could just be an afternoon but it's more about you know the opportunity to showcase art um that looks at these issues and to create a to create kind of atmosphere where people feel comfortable talking about it that that's is very cool very exciting that the communities can do that and that you could crowdfund this so give people the opportunity i don't know if you'll crowdfund in the future for a book or a festival or whatever but uh your website is many i'm sorry i'm not good at reading <laughs> winnie. winnie i'm trying to say it clearly here but it's when you say it winnie m lee so winnie, winnie, like winnie the pooh yeah w-a-n-n-i-e-m-l-i 
and the book is called Dark Chapter, and mm-hmm. the festival is called Clear Lines. Clear Lines so festival. if you go for that, if you Google that, that's clearlines.org.uk, and eventually we'll be having a U.S. site as well. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for indulging me on some of these questions and thanks today. Ooh. I am inspired by your use of art, art, creativity and the topic and undoing taboos and getting people talking. Love it. Great. So thank you for being on the show very much. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate yeah, it. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.